Chapter Three of Paul the Dauntless. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Leeson. Paul the Dauntless by Basil Joseph Matthews. Chapter Three on the Caravan Road. One day, as he stood on the rooftop at home in Tarsus, Saul would hear the quick steps of asses coming along the street. The sound suddenly ceased in front of the house. Leaning over the parapet, he could see, in the swiftly fading evening light, tired travelers alighting. His father was eagerly welcoming them to enter the house. The foot-weary, dusty asses were being led away to the stable. Saul knew what it meant. The days of the seeking of a new life were upon him, the hour when any boy is very glad and more than a little afraid. Year after year pilgrims from the cities of the high plateau beyond the mountains, as surely as the sun would set behind Tarsus, claimed the hospitality of a Jew so full of zeal for the nation as Saul's father. They were on their way south through Tarsus, seeking the feast at Jerusalem. Over supper, while the student Saul nodded and roused himself between sleepiness and eager inquisitiveness, they would tell of the Roman cities up beyond the mountains, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and of wild life among the hills on the way to Tarsus. He would hear tell of robbers, who lurked among the gray crags and sprang out on the traveler as he passed through the ravine, and how the Roman soldiers were trying to dislodge them from their fastnesses among the rocks. Saul had, in the years that had gone, often said good-bye to his father, who would sometimes go with these pilgrims down to the feast at Jerusalem. The father would come back to Tarsus, weeks later, with wonderful stories of the people gathered from all over the world in the crowded temple courts at Jerusalem, of the flowing robes of the barefooted priests, the bleeding of the thousands of lambs brought for sacrifice, the smoke curling up from the altars, the harsh clash of cymbals, the sounding of the brass trumpets. Saul would ask many questions about the great public school among the cloisters and courts of the temple, where the masters sat, with their students in a circle round them, teaching and discussing the law of Moses. For Saul already was an ambitious, swift-minded student. His brain absorbed everything that was about him. At school in Tarsus he was a keen boy, who leapt ahead of his many classmates. When he was old, indeed, the thing he remembered most clearly about his youth was, I advanced in the Jews' religion beyond many of mine own age among my race, being exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. His father would then have to tell the boy all about the incidents that happened in the temple. It may well be that one day, when Saul's father was at the temple after Passover, his eyes fell upon another boy, a little older, he would note, than his own Saul a Jewish twelve-year-old peasant from Nazareth. This young peasant was sitting in one of those circles of students in front of the rabbis, the teachers, after the feast days, both hearing them and asking them questions, and all that heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It is quite possible that, if Saul's father noticed this boy asking questions, he would think how clever he was, but he would not be likely to admit that this Jesus was a finer son than his own Saul at home in Tarsus. It is quite certain, however, that the father would listen very carefully to the greatest of these temple teachers, the headmaster, whose name was Gamaliel. Gamaliel, the learned and grave, the gentle and firm, 
the grandson of old Hillel the kind. And when he reached Tarsus again, he would tell them all about this wonderful headmaster till Saul, the student, now grown up into his teens, would feel that the greatest thing in the world would be to go from Tarsus to Jerusalem to Gamaliel, and powder himself in the dust of his feet, and drink in his words with thirstiness. Like a young bird, just feeling the strength of its newly-fledged wings, Saul longed for a wider flight for his mind, some task greater, more difficult than the Jewish school at Tarsus could give to him. Now, as the pilgrims visited his house, the hour had really come when Saul was to go up to the feast at Jerusalem. His dark face would flush with eagerness as he stood on the rooftop at Tarsus that evening, and looked away south and east toward the land of his fathers and toward Jerusalem, away to the great sea, ten miles away, where it caught the glow of the sunset. The curious aching desire, half joy and half pain, that comes to us when at last we are to range in the wider world, would grip him now. For in a few hours he was to start out with his father and the other pilgrims, to leave home and see that wonderful temple which Herod had built at Jerusalem, with its gleaming marble and gold that glittered in the sun, a mountain of snow they called it. And as Saul, after making his evening prayer toward Jerusalem, took his last look across the plain before going down into the house, he would see the lengthening purple shadows of the mountains stretching across the Cilician plain, and the last rays of the sun lighting up with gold the mountain of snow of the Taurus, a temple not made with hands. Indoors his mother would be very busy folding the clothes which she had been making through the past weeks the tunics and girdles, and especially the warm cloaks. Jerusalem was high up on the hills, and her son would need warmer clothes there in the winter than he did at home on the plain in Tarsus. Her son was going to the great public school of his nation in Jerusalem, and he must have the clothes suitable, so she would count them and fold them, and although she would be very proud and glad that her Saul was going out to take his place in the larger world, we can believe that sometimes she would hardly be able to tell a tunic from a cloak for the dimness of her eyes. Saul's father would be made of harder stuff. He belonged to the strictest of the strict Jews, the sect called the Pharisees, the separatists who held themselves quite aloof from those who did not keep the law very carefully. It would make the father very proud and happy that his son was so clever in learning this law and in discussing it, and so eager to keep it. The leave taking over, the pilgrim student would quickly forget the wrench of going from home in his eager enjoyment of his first journey. We cannot tell which way they traveled. They might go eastward by land to Syria, walking round the end of the gulf. But far more probably they would take the quicker sea route from the lake harbor below Tarsus to Caesarea on the coast of Palestine. Whether they went by sea or by land, they would at last come out on to the long winding caravan road, climbing among the hills on the way to Jerusalem. It was springtime, and the fields were all dancing with nodding anemones, from flaming red to delicate heliotrope. Up the long road could be seen the dusty pilgrims from many countries, all with their faces turned toward Jerusalem. Some rode on stately camels and others on ambling asses, like dignity traveling with impudence. There the old, old rabbi, with dreamy face, who had traveled the road fifty times, nodding asleep, insecurely astride his overloaded donkey. 
Running alongside him were dark-haired, eager-eyed Jewish boys coming up for the first time, full of mischief. A young mother, sitting behind all the family belongings balanced across the donkey's back, carried her baby up to Jerusalem, while the father walked beside them. Men from Cyprus and from Antioch, from far-off Greece and even from Rome, were all on the road looking forward to the vision of the city set on the hill. As the sun dropped near to the horizon, everyone would be walking more slowly, for they were all very tired. At last the well where they could water the beasts and by which they could camp came in sight, and the camels and donkeys, sniffing the water, quickened their pace. Some slept in the inn by the well, but most of them would sleep out. Rough huts were swiftly made with branches for the women, while the boys searched round for twigs and roots, broken olive branches, and quickly burning shrubs to start the campfire. Saul would almost fall asleep as he ate his crushed dates and raisins by the flickering fire. His evening prayer was soon made, then he lay on the ground under the open sky. Nor would the melancholy howling of jackals echoing among the hills keep his tired eyes open. The first glimmer of sunshine saw them on the road again in the cool of the morning. All day they trudged along, till at last, coming round the shoulder of a hill, they stopped to gaze. Saul's mind would fill with wonder. There, across the valley, more beautiful than an earthly palace, as it seemed to his excited mind, blazed the roof and walls of the temple itself. All round was the majesty of Roman strength, the garrison citadel with Antony's tower, the wonderful palace of Herod and its lovely gardens kept green with water brought on the long aqueduct from a spring near Bethlehem, the great circle of the Roman theatre, the gymnasium astride the Tyropian valley. Not these but the temple, the goal and center of the life of the whole Jewish race, held Saul's eyes. Tired though they were, they would press patiently on, going down across the glen of the brook, up again and under the gateway through the wall into Jerusalem. The next morning would find them going through the streets down past the Roman garrison tower. There they found themselves jostled and elbowed by the many-colored, ever-moving crowds of people from all the lands of the Mediterranean, from the banks of the Nile and the Tiber, the Orontes and the Euphrates, from the cities and the islands of the Aegean Sea, the mountain valleys of Greece, and the deserts and plateaus of Persia. Turning to the right, under the great gateway of the temple, they took off their sandals from their feet, for it was holy ground, and gave their freewill offering into the treasury. They waited while the spotless lamb of sacrifice was slain for them by the priest, then Saul and his father and the others in their party went away, and in the evening they would go to an upper room to the supper, perhaps in the house of Saul's elder sister and her husband. At supper the lamb was eaten as a sign that life is saved at the cost of life. They also ate bitter herbs to bring back to their minds how bitter their forefathers' slavery in Egypt had been in the days of old and took a paste made of crushed fruit and vinegar to recall the clay with which their fathers had made bricks under Pharaoh. So they celebrated the supper of the Passover in Jerusalem. When they had ended that supper, which is itself, as we have seen, a story of God leading his people out of slavery over sea and desert into a new land, the boy Saul, lonely, far away from home, 
and at the beginning of his life in this new great school would in the moments between lying down and falling asleep reach out a hand into the darkness feeling after the hand of god if haply he might find it and indeed he had great need of that hand for the casement of his life was opening on the foam of perilous seas end of chapter three